in a narrow hallway that's seven feet wide and 25 feet long with 15 hostages and two guys in suicide vests with AK-47s. And oh, by the way, make sure you had shoot them and don't shoot one of the hostages. And those guys did it. And one of their guys got shot in the hand. Both the hostage takers are dead. All the hostages are rescued because those guys were willing to expose themselves to that danger. And, and there was no question. Like if you did, if you ran that thing a hundred times in a simulator, 99 times, one of those cops gets killed. Like there's, there's no, you can't look at that situation and go, yeah, this one's going to go well. But yet all of those guys rogered up and went and did the job. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Street Cop Training Podcast. We host founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benio, and we have with us today John Becker's back. And uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. But we have other topics we want to discuss. And here we are. So, welcome back, brother. Appreciate it. Buddy, I appreciate you having me back. It's good to be here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, likewise. So, we talked a little bit about some of the media stuff. Where do you want to go with some of these things today? So, I think, yeah, I just wrote uh, two pieces. Uh, one for police and security news, one for law or uh, for officer.com on the Brianna Taylor case, because we just did a special on the Brianna Taylor case uh, on the debrief. And I, I think, I think there's a lot of kind of educational points that are worth talking about and, and listening to um, that. I think we should probably pick up um, the, the first of which I think is how inaccurate the media narrative versus what actually happened was and how the city of Louisville lost control of the narrative. And, and by doing so, um, the case was misreported and ended up being kind of a, you know, cause celeb that you had freaking LeBron James and Kamala Harris and Beyonce and Alicia Keys all commenting on and all commenting on inaccurate aspects of the case. Um, so maybe, maybe it's best just to kind of give you a quick summary. Um, <clears throat> Brianna Taylor happens. You had Ahmed Arbery happen. Then Brianna Taylor happens. Doesn't get that much attention. And then George Floyd happens. When the George Floyd hat case happens and Benjamin Crump gets involved, um, the attorneys that are working for Brianna's family reach out to, to um, Benjamin Crump and that pulls it into the media. So those two stories kind of get conflated as, as innocent black person killed by law enforcement. And I'm not disputing that Brianna Taylor is, should, you know, should be alive. That's the question is why should she be alive? Um, but, you know, the initial media narratives were all about uh, Brianna was shot in her bed. Um, she was not involved. Uh, Kamala Harris, actually, when she was running for vice president, went on national television and said the police were serving a warrant at the wrong house, um, which was categorically untrue. Um, and it's, it's, you could see the story. I went back in the, in preparation for the episode, I went back and read all the reports, looked at all the videos, read a great deal of the media coverage, and you could watch the story gradually spin into an inaccurate version and then very slowly become more accurate over time. But by then it was too late. By then the narrative had run, you had, you know, 18 million likes on comments calling for the police officers to be arrested and charged. And so I think, I think that's kind of the first lesson learned here is, is that they allowed the narrative to run unopposed 
and didn't really fight what actually happened against what was being said. And, and it, it got out of control on him um, in a really, really bad way that, that ultimately can lead to bad law. But I think just to clarify what actually happened, um, Brianna Taylor was a target of the investigation. She was the girlfriend of the primary target of the investigation, or ex-girlfriend. Um, through jail recordings, she was holding money for them. She had rented a car for the primary suspect that subsequently a body was found in. Um, you know, the search warrant is written for her location in her name. And so there, there's no question that they were at the correct location. Um, they knocked and noticed. It was not, they, they had a no-knock endorsement. Not it was not served as a no knock warrant. There was knock and notice given, which gave Brianna and her new boyfriend time to get out of bed and be in the hallway when the police actually breached the door. At that point, her new boyfriend shot John Mattingly, who was the sergeant that was leading the team, in the leg. He returned fire. They returned fire, and in the process, the boyfriend jumps out of the way and Brianna's killed. That's kind of the, that's kind of the short fact summary. Now there. There are really bad issues with the warrant on the front end. Um, there were lies in in affidavits. So the the warrant, con- the constitutionality of the warrant is in question, and the officers that wrote the warrant are being charged federally. There's, I'm going to jump in here real quick and yeah, say this. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and uh, let me just start by saying that this is an adult conversation. This is not my opinion on anything. Um, I told John before we went live on this that. I know, I don't know anything about the affidavit or what it said, but it's so funny because it rang a bell with some, and I don't want to say so funny because it's not, it's a tragic event, but uh, it rang a bell of a piece of case law that I know I've read that said, even if some of the facts on an affidavit are incorrect, but the probable cause and the factual data was enough to still establish the necessity of a warrant, then the warrant is still valid, even though some yep. of the stuff may be incorrect. So just so we're clear, you can actually have a lot of icing on the cake that is bad icing. As long as the cake is still solid and strong, it's still a good warrant. Uh, as long as they they had enough probable cause to support it, even though the bad stuff might get thrown out. Yeah, 100%. And there is a good faith exception in this case that applies because the warrant is, you know, I mean, it's signed by a judge. It, mm-hmm. um, the, the underlying statements that were made, the, the sad thing about it is the underlying statements that were made that were, you know, argue, arguably not true. Um, didn't really bolster the case that much. Right. It had to do with, with packages being received at the house and they had enough. Um, so that, that kind of is the first thing that, that that's one of the narratives that runs wild after the fact is that, you know, that the, the affidavit is not accurate. Um, one of the officers after the shooting starts, um, there are three officers that are involved, John Mattingly, Miles Cosgrove and Brent Hankison. Um, John returns fire, fires a total of six rounds. He's the one that shot in the thigh in the femoral artery. Um, uh, Brent, uh, Miles Cosgrove steps over John and returns fire down the hallway. Um, the That shooting was not really found to be in policy because of the number of rounds that were fired and, and the clarity of targets. Um, and then a third officer, Brent Hankison, who is the one that's being charged federally, moves down the side of the house and fires rounds into the side of the building. Um, which is through through blinds and and arguably unconstitutional. So you kind of have problems before and after the initial shooting. But the issue that everybody takes, which is Brianna being shot, 
actually just happens in a crossfire that is a perfectly legal constitutional crossfire. Uh, the the her boyfriend fires around at an officer, hits him, turns fire, and so it's it's one of those things where it's it's certainly not ideal. Like it's it, she should still be alive. There were other tactics that could have been used. I, I think that the the underlying tactics are certainly in question, but it is a case where the media narrative spun so far out of control that you had people, you know, LeBron James talking about the case in a way that was completely inaccurate and nobody opposing the narrative. Um, I do think there's a conversation there about dynamic warrants, right? Like I think if this is a contain and call out warrant, it probably ends differently. But um, I, I think that the kind of the lesson learned for agencies is you have to oppose inaccurate facts, even if it's politically you know, inexpedient at the time, um, you've got to come out. And, and actually, and I think this is this goes to police transparency, which we kind of talked about the last time, is is the it, it is essential that an agency gets in front of the fact patterns and releases information. Right. Right. Body-worn cameras have been fantastic for that. And you know, the narrative is never as bad. I mean, the worst case scenario, George Floyd might be the exception to that case where you saw the video and it was actually it was actually worse than you thought it was going to be. But uh, you know, for the most part, the the what people imagine happened is never as bad, is, is always worse than what actually happened. And so it, it's important to get out there and kind of attack the facts and say, here's what actually happened. Essentially, this comes down to um everybody's chief complaint in this industry is that there's a extremely poor and lack of leadership in this profession. That's if you ask every cop in the country, uh, what's their chief complaint? 99% of them complain that there's a leadership issue. So clearly when you have some 99% of people complaining about their leadership, leadership's not going to know how to respond appropriately because they don't know what to do. Just like when they don't know what to do when they get a fiscal budget or when they're trying to figure out what MDTs to buy or to what firearms to purchase next. Um, you know, I'm not saying 99% of leaderships have failed. I'm saying that's what you get. And guess what? You might have high command leadership, chiefs, captains, majors, who are very capable. But you also, it, it, you know, if you have the leadership model that's failing at the medium level or lower level frontline leadership, that's a leadership failure. So we're not saying the chief is the bad guy or the fucking captain's the bad guy or the lieutenant or this guy. It could be one sergeant fucking the whole thing up. And the problem with that is, is when you allow as a top level leader for lower level leaders to misbehave and misappropriate and not lead appropriately, that's where you start having problems. So leadership is an interesting thing. Uh, and it's wild that that's just, this is the biggest issue in law enforcement. And there's a simple reason why is because the promotional process in public service is not based on what it's supposed to be based on, where that's even though entrepreneurship is brutal and private business is tough at least in some sense, outside of Fortune 1000 companies, you are not going to get ahead and become a leader or progress as a, as a person who commands authority if you're not good because your business will just fall apart. It'll not be a business. So the best in the business are the ones who are displaying those leadership qualities of emotional intelligence, fairness, impartiality, um, you know, recognizing that there's some hard work that has to get done when you're a leader. It's not just sitting in ivory towers and golden chairs. And, and we see it over and over again. And I think there's political pressure on the back end. You saw what happened in Atlanta. 
That chief eventually resigned. I think the NYPD chief just quit. She's just done. She punched out. Uh, who knows why? But let's face facts. She burnt out. You know what I mean? You're fighting a battle that you can't win. Um, and, and and maybe that's not the case. Who knows what the back end reasons are? But why do you think the the lady in Atlanta was not going along with the media? You know, with with what the what her boss wanted her to do. So they found somebody that would. That's all they do. They just find somebody that'll agree to what they want you to say. You don't want to say what you want to say? You're out. Bring the next guy in. Didn't they just do that in L.A.? L.A. just got one of those guys? So, no. I I mean, L.A. has a long history of that. But I, I think I think we've got two problems that, that are actually happening simultaneously that's kind of building this, this storm. The first is that we, as a society, we have decided that if you have made a mistake, we're going to cancel you. We're going to crucify you. We're going to kick you out. And so what you see happening in police departments is guys who are aggressive, guys who go out and, and work street crime and, and work dope and work those things and get forced complaints, don't promote. They they get marginalized, they get shoved off to the side because, you know, they've had complaints. And, and, and from my perspective, I don't think you should have, you know, sustained complaints, but to some degree, complaints against a police officer is an indication he's doing his job. Um, if he's if he's never getting a complaint, he he very well may not be doing anything. So right. you know, there we we are down selecting to a population of leadership. You know, leadership in in management is probably a more accurate term. That's right. Who, yeah, leadership. Who have, who have never gotten in trouble? Right. You're getting a chief of police that's never worked dope, that's never worked SWAT, that's you know never worked a street crimes unit. He's worked admin his whole career, and that's why he stayed out of trouble. And if you look at the founders of SWAT in the United States, and you look at the guys that are now legends that that you know the whole tactical community looks up to, you know a lot of those guys were the guys that brought me up in 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 the industry. None of them would promote in modern law enforcement. None of them. I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's like our political system, right? You, if you look at the founding fathers, none of those guys would ever get elected now because they all had baggage and problems and issues. And so we are, we've, we've created a selection criteria that is selecting for people who have not done stuff, who have not been in trouble. And we're, we're, as a result, we're getting leaders who are not decision makers. They're not aggressive um, and are focused on maintaining their careers. The, the other thing that's happening is we're not teaching leadership to law enforcement. Right. Right. I, it, one of my favorite podcast interviews with, with my primary mentor was a guy named Sid Hale. And Sid said, by the time I led men in the in combat in the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps had spent conservatively $100,000 on leadership training for me and taken 10 years to build me. I was ready. I was prepared. I knew what to do. When I made commander in the Sheriff's Department, they gave me a new badge. So that was it. Well, now they'll send you to a three-day leadership school, and it has nothing to do with actual leadership. It has to do with the status quo of uh, penalties and and SOP following and yeah. and you know how to handle a complaint when it comes in like management yeah it's it, they're management schools they're not leadership schools and yeah. and how dare they call them that and they're prevalent they're they're profound in this industry and the crazy thing is uh, when you come in and try to make things better the other side who's already been existing the the current guard gets very frustrated because their way's been the right way however we find ourselves in a state of affairs. That's literally laughable. And at the bottom of it, what bothers me the most is lives are lost because of all these bad decisions, because yep. of all. And that's that's what you got to understand what the problem is. This is not me saying I'm mad at the political agenda. I'm mad at the, I just have to 
try to explain to people that we can't as a society afford to intertwine law enforcement and politics because lives are lost. Either they're lost due to our inactivity, uh, they're lost due to our inability to investigate appropriately. Dude, I know a guy, I know somebody who runs a detective bureau at an agency, and this person told me literally, I have seven detectives that have no idea what they're doing. No clue. They just got put there and they have no clue. And they're they're working like a homicide right now. Like it's ridiculous. I'm like literally telling our bosses, you got to give it to another agency. We can't do this. These guys don't even know what what automatic license plate readers are. And we're trying to work this. And I'm like telling them, and like, I got major crimes detectives who are like, what are you talking about? What are those things? Like, you don't know what this stuff is. You don't know how to go into these. They've had zero training. And it's not the fact that they're failing us. We've just failed them. You know, you get sent to an academy where you learn how to march, do push-ups, jog, run, call cadence, swing a stick at a bag, and learn the nomenclature of a handcuff. And then they want a professional coming out who's empathetic, compassionate, tactically sound, knows how to fight, but you haven't taught them anything. Nothing. No, you're dead on. We we are so underfunding training and so undertraining our law enforcement. Oh, it's and it's, it's it's manifesting itself now, right? Like you're you're seeing um, you know, officers that are involved in in shootings or in incidents where were they better trained? Had they better tactics? Had they been led better? They wouldn't be. Um, and it's it's unfortunate. I, I tell you, I'm involved with a thing with the California Association of Tactical Officers. It's called the Strategic Leadership Program. And it was envisioned by Sid Hale when he was running Cato. The idea was, let's pick 10 tactical leaders from all over the state of California and spend 18 months mentoring these guys and exposing them to the best tactical leaders we can find. So we pull these guys together every two months for two days and sit them down with the best and brightest. And it ranges from current kind of thought leaders all the way back to, you know, the OGs and the founders. And these two days are, you know, two 12 hour days where we pack them with meeting after meeting conversations, exercises, learning to breathe, learning to argue, learning tactical science, learning leadership, learning culture, and have them doing a lot of kind of self-exploration between classes where it's like, go home and come back and talk about this. They'll read a book, come back, talk about how this affects your agency, how this affects you personally. And the whole idea here is to give these guys a, a stable of wealth, you know, well-thought, well-respected leaders that they can reach out to when they get in trouble and when they have questions and also give them a peer group of guys who are at the same stage in career and have been through the same program that they can turn to. And it's, it's, we're on the third generation of this program now. And the first two yielded some of the best men set aside best leaders. They're fantastic leaders, but some of the best men I have ever known who had really spent a lot of time looking at what they believed and what they cared about and understanding the opponents, you know, understanding, you know, Radley Balco's book and understanding the ACLU's position and being able to articulate the decisions that they made. But it's, it's, it's unfortunate that that that's the anomaly, right? That's not a, that's not a normal thing. Um, the, the quality of law enforcement leaders has declined dramatically because we're so underfunding training leaders. And, and we should be, you know, we should be doing what the military is doing. The military develops leaders, right? You go to command college before you get command. Um, you, you learn history, you learn theory, and, and we're not doing that with law enforcement. And, and the result is we're getting bad leadership. And, you know, I'm sure you experience it firsthand and see it in your training. But if we don't start making better decisions, 
you know, it's a, one of my favorite sayings is play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Right now we're under training, underpaying, and and you know, under leadering our law enforcement. And then we're surprised when things don't go well. It's it's insane. I think the general public has no idea what the detriment law enforcement faces today. And this could be an accurate or an inaccurate statistic, but yesterday we were going over uh, Ellie Alfonso, who's one of our new instructors here, is teaching a use of force class. It's very good. Uh, I think it's called, I named it yesterday. It's called like legal use of force for the law enforcement professional. And so in the beginning of her class, she goes over statistics and data and how it correlates to the media and, and public and society. I believe we're down to 660,000 members of the law enforcement community now, which we're typically at our highest, we're around 750. Yeah. So this country is down 90,000 cops. And I'm surprised you know, it's that small, to be honest. Yeah. And, and the reality is, is it's people. I always think about the frog in the pot, you know? Yeah. So it's, true, man. How long is it going to be before you realize that we have lost one of our greatest assets and resources as a first responder response here in this country? When you're I, waiting for the cops for 15 or 20 minutes, that's a long time while somebody's trying to kick your door with an axe and hack you to pieces. And people no, will say, you're well, right, man. well, look, you don't, I don't got to worry about it. We're no. tactically sound. Yeah. But unfortunately, they're not going to care that one or two or three or four lives are lost. Um, it's, it's such a crazy thing to think that one of the most important fabrics of society is our comfortability and safety of knowing that first responders are available. Like what happens when there's not enough cops on the road? And there's a significant crash and nobody can get there. You know, I dude, I've been to jobs where I was the last one there because we were so understaffed at the moment. Uh, and first aid had been there and fire before us. And that's almost unheard of. So what happens when there's none of that to show up? You know, I, I was just in Greece recently. Uh, and I'm like, you guys have, um, that was a Mykonos. And I was like, you guys have, have uh, cops here? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, where? So the cops don't even carry. I don't know what they had. I mean, but they're kids. They're like 19-year-old kids walking around in like uh in like army pants and like and like polo shirts. And like you guys have a lot of crashes. Mykonos is wild if anybody's ever been there. It's just, dude, it's like a it's like a Mario Kart. The, the roads are built in like, you know, they were probably built, I'm guessing, in like 200 AD. Yeah. Right. Like who knows? Like, I'm, yeah, it's crazy. And like I asked my one uh driver, I was like, you know, how many crashes do you guys have? He's like, the hospital here is constantly packed. It's constantly packed. And I said, why? He goes, because nobody knows how to drive here. They're just wild. And he's like, law enforcement takes forever to come to one of these crashes. So you get hurt. It's not like here. You're not getting a cop in a few minutes. You're not getting first aid to respond. So the question is, what happens when that really, really, guys, people are just not willing to deal with what it's like to be a cop for what, one, they're getting paid, or two, how society feels about them. They're just not willing to do it like they once were. I do um, think, I think it's changing. And I, so w what happens when we don't support law enforcement is San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver. That's what happens, right? You, you, you I don't know if you've been to San Francisco recently, no. but San Francisco used to be one of my favorite cities. I mean, it was a beautiful city. You know, there was always lots of fun stuff to do. Um, it, it's not that anymore. I, I was just recently yesterday or last week in Vancouver and there's a street in Vancouver called East Hastings street. And so we went to an Italian restaurant that was kind of down towards East Hastings Street. Well, we walked around the corner and literally guys sitting on the side of the street, injecting heroin into his arm. 
And based on his color and the number of scabs he had, I'm going to guess he's been doing that for a long time. And, and then I looked and there was another one and another one and somebody smoking crack. And I mean, honestly, in this one circular area, probably a hundred people in various stages of stone, whatever. And I called one of my friends at the RCMP and I said, dude, what's going on down here? And he goes, yeah, he goes, no, they decriminalize, they decriminalize drugs. He goes, so the police don't go there anymore. And he's like, it's like a zombie movie, right? So yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a zombie movie. It's a bunch of people strung out on drugs in various states of undress. I mean, it was, it was growing up in LA. I thought it was bad. <laughs> and I mean, I grew up in LA. Right? We, we, we literally coined the phrase skid row. Right? And uh, it's, you know, we're starting to see it. I see it in the teams I deal with the majority of teams right now that I deal with. And, and we deal with everything from small part-time team to, you know, ESU and LAPD and LA Sheriff and, you know, et cetera. And most of those teams are down between 30 and 40% from full strength. Yeah, it's wild. Right. So they're, they're authorized for 60 and they have 35. And in a full-time tactical unit, 35 is not enough. Right. So it's, it's just what's happening is response times are getting worse. You know, you know, tactical teams are showing up. They don't have enough people to make a safe entry. And, and ultimately what ends up happening is in a hostage situation, they take that chance, but, um, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing that. Like that, that is not a good decision. (laughs) Selection criteria is down. Right. So I literally speak with chiefs of police and like here, and they're like, Hey, you have anybody good? And I'm like, what? They're down. They can't even get applicants that they can get to pass a background check. Like, dude, we had 30 people apply. We took three. Yeah. Everybody else was at, they're afraid to take some of these kids because they come in libbed the fuck out. And unfortunately, political, your, your job as a police officer is to have compassion, interpret the law appropriately and, and prevent, you know, law, a serious loss of, you know, human life and to stop crime. This is not an opportunity for us to start bringing agendas in on how your personal feelings are. Again, compassion is super important. Uh, making good calls with compassion is great. And I think it's saying communication is important, which is good. But I have these chiefs who are like, we, we can't have these people working here. Like, we, we will. This will be a nightmare. We will have literally lawless police officers. They do not believe in the rules, these people. They don't believe in the Constitution and what the laws are set forth for us to enforce them and to ensure and restore order in society. These kids don't want to hear. They, they're like literally out of their minds. So the selection process is down. I just saw a video recently. It was a clip of like two NYPD female officers hit like smoking a hookah out of the front of the police car. I just saw this video. And, you know, in my head, I go, what do you think you're going to get? What do you think was going to happen? You can ask anyone from the NYPD who they're hiring. It's, it's insane. A, a lot of great men and women there. But like, dude, there literally is a video like them hitting a hookah out of the goddamn front seat of the police car. Like you see these things, and you're like, what did you expect? Uh, you know, I saw a crash on a holiday recently and I saw the NYPD guys who were responding to the crash and girls, they're babies, man. They're, I mean, they're babies. They're like young, young, young kids. Uh, their whole NYPD is very, very young because everybody left. So now you got a bunch of kids doing the best that they can, but with almost no leadership. And I, I challenge you to find one NYPD person who is actually with their, happy with their job. I just, I challenge you because I, I know a lot of them and, I have I think, not met one person yet. I think there's also two other factors that are playing there. Um, one, obviously, retirement ages moved down for law enforcement. You know, over the course of your career, over the course of my career, 
you know, guys used to retire in their 60s. Now in California, the majority of agencies are retiring at 50. Right. So right as a guy hits his, you know, a guy or girl hits their absolute peak of their powers, which is, you know, late 40s, early 50s is where you really know what the fuck you're doing. And and have also kind of gotten to a point where your brain is clear enough that you don't tend to make as many ego-based decisions and anger-based decisions and everything else. Those guys are retiring. They're going somewhere else. Um, I think the other thing that's happening is we we have politicized law enforcement. And you know, I remember when when it started, um, you know, really got bad five or six years ago. It was where where we started to like you know the FBI is corrupt and the NYPD is corrupt and um, law law enforcement is not a political activity, right? It's a, it's a constitutional activity based on laws. Um, it's the executive that enforces the laws, it's the legislature that makes them. It should not be a political activity. And we have politicized law enforcement to the point that we're undermining the credibility of law enforcement as an entity. We're undermining society's confidence in government. And part of that is is the kind of news media. You know, it's it's the way that the media is running stories and the stuff that we're being fed. But it's also we are allowing politicians to put law enforcement in the middle of political discussions. And, you know, there's a reason that police officers are not allowed to wear political badges on their uniforms, right? You can't wear your, you know, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, whatever, on your police uniform, because law enforcement should be neutral, should be politically neutral. It should be based solely on the law, not Mm -hmm. on your personal political beliefs, not on, you know, the city's personal political beliefs, but on what the law says, and we've allowed this this politicization to happen in a way that society is losing faith on both sides, right? Both left and right now think that law enforcement is flawed. The right thinks that law enforcement has gotten woke and is too liberal. The left thinks that law enforcement is racist. But we're kind of those two opinions are closing in on each other in a way that I think is really dangerous to us as a society. I, I think we're we're treading on very thin ice here. And we need, you know, we need, and that is where our political leadership needs to come back and go, now hold on a second. The entire yeah. FBI is not corrupt. There might be bad, there may be F, bad FBI agents. There's bad FBI agents, there's bad NYPD cops, there's bad surgeons, there's bad doctors, there's bad dentists. Yep, we need to ferret those out. But a bad apple does not mean that the entire card is bad. And we need to stop speaking in these generalities because by doing so, we're really undermining society's faith in law enforcement. And, and I think it's, I think from a societal standpoint, you know, you talk about the thin blue line, but as somebody who has spent his entire career working with law enforcement and as an attorney, you know, no matter how you want to describe it, there's a thin blue line, <laughs> right? There, there is a, there is somebody who is willing to go and respond to a situation for somebody they don't know and risk their lives to save them. And the minute you take that guy out of the equation, nobody shows up. And that's what you're saying. It's like, you've just, we, we are, we're walking down a very dangerous road. And I think it, it, that we really need to kind of reverse course here. Unfortunately, <clears throat> this is an intelligent conversation. Like I said earlier, about 90 to 95% of general society is unintelligent. Um, it's clear as day. And no, it's crazy. The most unintelligent people are the ones who think they're the most intelligent. And they're usually the most emotionally charged as well. 
So when you have intelligence versus unintelligence and emotionally charged versus you know emotionally sound and and consistent, um, it becomes very frustrating. And you almost go, the guys like us will go. It's it's such a moot conversation. Even this conversation, we're expending all this energy, and probably people listen going, yeah, we all know this. This all makes sense. But how do we get through to where we need to get through to? And the answer is, I wish I knew. And all we can do is keep, you know, people say to get frustrated with the industry, to get frustrated with this. Yeah, man, I get very frustrated with this industry. I'm frustrated. I'm a political, they're, they're politicizing me right now here in the state of New Jersey. So I become a political pawn in the game of canceling me, not, you know, all this bullshit that they're trying to play here. Um, it, it's a, it's all politics. It has nothing to do with anything else other than it's politics. Actually, most of it's completely silly because there's no conversation to be had. And that's where we embark upon a, a scary road because my theory is if you're showing up to work as a police officer and I have the ability and resources to make sure that you go home to your family every night, and I help you find people who in society are the most dangerous felons who need to be apprehended. And without me, none of that happens or very, very little or less of that happens. It's a, it's the only thing that actually keeps me motivated to stay in this industry is the purpose of why it is. Because I got to tell you, I have friends that make a lot of money and I am always a phone call away from just figuring it out and saying to them, show me how you do that. I could be a lot more wealthy, but I just have a hard time morally, even though I'm getting my face smashed in constantly and turned into this politicizing thing when I'm trying to help. And they're twisting around the 1% of mistakes that we've made and the 99% of successes that we've had. And it, it's extremely frustrating, but I, I, I just try to remind myself of like, it's not about you. It's about this dad who at yeah. this Christmas, he'll be there. Yeah. So how fucking dare I ever just fold it all in, you know, call it a day and go do something just for myself. Uh, so it's a big responsibility and it takes, you know, the crazy thing is no matter how much work you do, and I think that's a lot on every front, no matter how much work you do and how important the work was, you're always going to be by yourself. You know, I, I think about these people and what they're doing to Donald Trump and all this thing. You're always just going to be by yourself. You've done so many good things. And then, here you are, after doing all these great things, you're by yourself. And how much pain tolerance do you have? How much can you handle as a human being? Because you're going to get pushed to your limits when you're trying to do something that's important work, when people don't like the work that you're doing. And again, it's hung up on some politicizing thing. What they'll use is they'll weaponize my foul language against me. Here's a professional. Um, really? Because I could imagine, it's just, dude, it's so flabbergasting that at times you're just like, oh, I'm so sick of this. Like it's, it's like everybody's so crooked, and we're the ones trying to fucking fix this shit, right? Everybody's so fucking crooked, and so doing such fucked up shit, and we're trying to fix and just make all we care about is the, the bottom line patrolman in this industry, and like you know, there's to turn it around and make it seem like we're evil, or the police are evil. It's it's just wild. And what the skeletons that are in their closets, the ones who are, you know, applause applied to everybody else, but not to them. Like how is Larry Krasner, the DA of, of Philadelphia, not going to prison for the homicides of thousands of people. How is Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, not being imprisoned for shutting down Chicago police from any efforts to try to stop crime? 
And now she's a Harvard professor being praised for the thousands of lives that were lost under her, uh, you know, term as a mayor. It's it's just wild. It's wild. I think part of our problem is that there isn't accountability. Like po- politicians have no real accountability. Mm-mm. Right. And <clears throat> I, I think that when when people are not accountable, they begin to act very selfishly. And Oof. I think that's kind of what we're seeing is we're seeing oh, yeah. kind of the worst of, of mankind um, being rewarded without consequences. And, and unfortunately, we're, we're kind of scaling that. Right, because as we reduce law enforcement, as we you know defund law enforcement, as we you know reduce the number of officers on the street, and we decriminalize everything, um, we're taking that lack of accountability and scaling it in society. And it's a it's a really dangerous proposition. And, and the, the, I think the most unfortunate thing is, certainly in my life, I've met a lot of bad cops, but I've met scores of good ones. And for most of them, it's and when you say bad cops, let me tell me what, 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 just elaborate on what bad cops are. Um, because I don't want, I like nar- narcotics officers, mind, like- narcotics officers that are stealing money from drug dealers, um, you know, officers that are extracting sexual favors. Like I've seen plenty of that in 40 years, but if you looked at years, it, uh, yeah. yeah, but if you looked at it as a percentage, it is a microscopic decimal of what's actually happening. Like if you looked at, let's call that malpractice, right? If you looked at that malpractice and you compared it to the malpractice of surgeons or lawyers or any other profession, uh, it is, it is such a small percentage. And, and yet that is what we are judged by, right? You, you know, I, I don't have any friends that are surgeons that feel like they're being persecuted because other surgeons have done a poor job and killed somebody. Um, but we we are very inclined to to generalize when it comes to law enforcement. I think part of that is because as Americans, we have a basic contempt for government. Um, and, and in the end, law enforcement is is government. Um, but I, I also think that it is very, you know, it's 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 a man bites dog story anytime law enforcement does something, you know, unconstitutional, illegal, or stupid. And so that gives the media an opportunity on both sides to run with the story um, because in the end, that's really what they, what they really want is they want eyes, you know, they, they want people to watch the show because that's Make how money. they sell advertising. Right. That's right. And so I don't, I don't know that I necessarily believe in a, a grand media conspiracy in the United States on either side. I think there's a far left media and a far right media. Um, I think all any of them really care about is their own agenda, which is trying to make money. It's it money. The, the problem is that, we have an evolutionary bias for negative information, right? We, we are, evolution has selected for us to be rewarded when we find something negative and not to be rewarded as much when we find something positive. And I'll, I'll give you an example. If your neighbor comes to you and they go, Hey, you know, Billy next door um, just got into Harvard. You're like, Oh, well, that's neat. But they're like, Billy has a communicable disease every dopamine circuit in your brain fires because, okay, I'm not going to protect my family, right? The orange tree down at the river has great oranges. Maybe that gets your interest. The orange tree down at the river has a giant rattlesnake that bites everybody that walks past. That gets your attention. That's why we talk shit about people. That's why we gossip. We like negative information. And in the same way that the food companies have figured out 
that they can give us a perfect balance of salty and sweet, and we will eat salted caramel until our head explodes and we get diabetes. The media has figured out that we like negative information. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they're feeding us. And, and we, we're eating it. I mean, we're getting social diabetes, right? Like we are, we are, we are eating that, that negative information until we have a completely skewed view of the world. And that completely skewed, you know, it is amazing how many people I talk to that I think are smart people. And, and, you know, they say things that you're like, you don't, you don't really believe that, do you? Um, And yeah, yeah, they do because they watch one news source from one political spectrum. They don't do any other research. And all of that negativity just buries itself in their brains. I My policy now is if there's an interesting news story, I actually will watch that news story, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and I'll read it in the Wall Street Journal. And somewhere between those four, you'll get what actually happened. Because each of them has a perspective that they're trying to promote to their user, right? Their, their viewer that their viewer identifies with that keeps them watching the show. But you have to, you have to thread through all that bias to get to what actually happened. And I think that, you know, as Americans, we need to be a little more discerning in what we're eating from our media. Um, And we need to look at opposing opinions and we need to argue more and we need to have discussions but we've become so emotionally charged that we can't have a conversation. Hey everybody, I'm Heather Glogolich, instructor here for Street Cop Training for the course, The Complete Female Cop. This class is not just for females. It's not just about gender specific issues. It was really formed in order to allow people to find that passion again for policing, to understand that their self-identity doesn't need to be changed just because they wanna fit the mold and to really help bring about change change in the profession, not just for women, but for everybody to be heart-led servant leaders. If you're interested in taking the course, you can visit streetcop.com and search Heather Glogolich and you'll be able to find it. Also really excited to announce that I have a new course coming out. It's going to be called Be the Change. Some of the great feedback I got from this year's conference in Nashville was that the men in this profession didn't feel like they wanted to take a spot away from the women that they work with for my first course that I teach. And so I was really able to sit down and put it together a course about culture change and building effective teams and learning about a growth mindset versus stagnation mindset, pushing forward and just being the best cop that you can be both personally and professionally. So really excited for that to be coming out soon. Keep an eye out for it. Thank you all so much. Stay safe and be the change. Well, that's because that's an intelligent response. And again, we're back to this theory of how do I make sense of this stuff? 90 to 95% of people. Uh, education. In, yeah, just it's not even education. It's just there are so many dynamics that go into it. It could be maybe something that's genetic or uh, maybe their environment or the education of it. There could be a lot of things. But yes, there's no conversation where there's going to be middle ground to be had, where there's empathy just deployed on both sides to try to understand what their positions are. Yeah. People just cannot control themselves emotionally. So you say to yourself, what can you do? And what I can suggest that you do is a, is a wonderful saying by Mother Teresa. It says, if you want to do something great for the world, go home and love your family. Because yeah. you can't, you can do the best you can, but sometimes it's the small things in life that have the biggest impact. And I try to tell people in my classes, like, let's talk about reality versus what you see on social media or the news. You know, in this room, we are, I would say this years ago, I'm like, we are a diverse group of people. And that's what I love the best about this business is. Um, no matter what you look like or what your gender is in this room, 
whether you've chosen a different identity, it doesn't matter. But if you wear that badge or that uniform, what's beautiful about this is that you are my brother or my sister. And it doesn't matter how you choose to live your life. We are all police officers together here for one common cause as good, honorable people trying to improve society and protect mankind. And I would tell these guys, like, go to the go to the store this afternoon. Are there segregation lines? I'm not saying that there aren't issues in society, but compared to what it once was 70 years ago, we have made leaps and bounds into, into essentially some of what Martin Luther King envisioned. And I think that um, as human beings, overall, we are great and kind. And there are some things that nobody likes in society, but they are fewer than 1% of the things that are actually true. So what they do is they take that less than 1% and they magnify it to make you believe that's how we live, but we don't. Um, I live in a neighborhood of complete diversity, nice neighborhood, but complete diversity. I have neighbors of all different colors and religions and my next door neighbor is a Sikh Indian. And I got to tell you, I've never met people in my life who I've enjoyed being their neighbor more. But the news will tell you that we're racist and we hate each other. But it's interesting in my life, I don't, I don't experience that. Um, I just don't. So I think we're all very, very quick to believe a narrative that is put in front of our face over and over and over again. And that is, and you're seeing it actually works because there's low enrollment numbers in law enforcement jobs. Because all you're going to do is turn on social media to watch a cop getting cursed at, to watch a cop getting fought or choked out or being uh, you know, schooled on a traffic stop. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's disheartening to watch. And this is not just, I've said this a thousand times, an opportunity for me to sit here on a podcast and complain about it. We're doing something. And the fucked up thing is the work that we're doing is important and people are trying to stop it. Uh, as nuts as that sounds. Well, other people are trying to encourage it as well, because I would sound like a hypocrite if that was solely the truth. It's just a moment in time where I'm experiencing a lot of pushback for the work that we're doing. And the crazy thing is, on the other hand of, of it all, we constantly hear like, hey, man, don't ever stop what you're doing what you're doing. We need you so much. It's so important to all of us. Like, you don't realize how important the work is. It means so much to all. Yeah, I'm like, hear that over and over again. And that's got to trump the things that we believer the truth yeah look around like this this is what it looks like on the other side of, of the Maslow triangle right like you're just trying to get to your next fix and and i think that we've just as as a country we've allowed ourselves to be divided over stupid shit that in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter um and and forget about the way things are i, I recently read a book called humankind um, which I would encourage all your listeners to read. It's a Dutch sociologist, and he looks at the basic tenet of our human beings, greedy and selfish. Are we actually evil fucking people who just take for ourselves? And he looks at numerous examples, going back to literally the case that inspired the book, Lord of the Flies. And what he concludes is, no, we're not. We're cooperative. We, we help each other. We, we do anything we can for one another. Yes, there are certainly some evil people, and that's why we have law enforcement, and that's why we have prisons. But he, he really undermines our entire belief that human beings are selfish and greedy. And, and it's interesting because the, the problem for us is the ones that we hear, the ones that are on TV, are the selfish and greedy ones. And so that, that is, you know, we look and we go, okay, that's, that's the whole world. But, you know, I was just listening to a, a book talking about the Hurricane Katrina response. 
and how the CEO of Walmart, because FEMA was a shit show, the CEO of Walmart enabled all of their stores to give away stuff. Take notes when you can, try to get whatever you can paid for, do whatever you need to do to your store to protect your community, right? Walmart had 1,200 truckloads delivered into that area. Not because they made money on it, because it was the right thing to do. Right. I mean, Walmart was the first responder for, for Katrina, and that was a greedy corporation making, you know, quote unquote, selfish decisions to help other people. So I, I think it's easy for us to get sucked into believing that we're, you know, everybody's evil. But in the end, we're not. It's a very small percentage of us that are. And, and we have to constantly remind ourselves, especially if you're in law enforcement, right? You, you look at the average law enforcement officer and you are seeing the worst of society. You are seeing all the people that beat their kids and beat their wives and use drugs and commit crimes. And, you know, you're not, you're not going to, you know, the, the, the happy bar mitzvah or the, the great wedding or, you know, the, the time that somebody does something amazing, you're, you're seeing the worst and, and the media is portraying the worst. And it's, a, it's very easy to get sucked into believing that that's what's actually happening, but it isn't, it isn't. Think turn, about off, this. turn off your TV and just, just look at your neighborhood. When we think about California, right? What's the first thing that comes to your mind immediately? You go right to San Francisco, right to LA yeah. and just the problems. Can we unpack how big that state is? And, you know, you talk to cops and, and dude, outside of these extremely liberal places, they actually have a very conservative way of life in California. You know, you've yeah. got a lot of farm country. Um, you have a lot of law, you have some of the best law enforcement agencies out there doing a lot of proactive work. Yeah. But again, what does the media show you? They show you San Francisco and LA. And yeah, those places are fucked up. They're really, they're really bad. It's like New York. But see, even, see- even LA. So it's like, okay, LA's fucked up. I mean, I've lived in LA my entire life, right? If if I start at one end of LA County and drive to the other without traffic, it's a solid two hours, right? On the East Coast, that takes you through two or three states in some places, right? right? Sure. That's just LA County, right? I mean, we've, we've got a third of the population of California in LA County. None of that stuff happens in my neighborhood, Right. And, and that's the thing we forget is, is we're, we're so inclined to find a single piece of shit and say that, oh, the whole city's shit. I mean, we have fantastic weather. We have great sports. We have great entertainment. We have amazing education. We have first, you know, literally the best medical in the world. And yeah, we, you know, our governor's kind of a dipshit and our taxes are too high. But in the end, other than certain parts of LA, LA is a fantastic place to live. And, and so it's, it's, again, you're letting the exception drive the rule and you're letting kind of the, you know, the San Francisco spoil California. And I mean, I've traveled all over the world. I've traveled all over the United States. There is nowhere I would rather live than in California in the United States. How's the food? Um, The food's fantastic. I'm going to, I'm going to, you have it in and out. So like you have it in and out. That's just. Gives you clout yeah. right there, right there, top of the pyramid, hundred percent. But I'd that's like our, that's to, our and, state food. <laughs> and people, people actually argue what a burger is better. I, I, I don't yeah. see it. I understand, and people are going to have a fit to this one. I have no idea what a burger tastes like. Burger King to me, but the only uh, one I will put on the same pinnacle with In and Out is Shake Shack. 
Yeah, I'm still going to go with in now. And I it think pains me. It pains me to pick a New York based business. Uh, but no, I mean, it's, it's, that's the thing is it's like we, in the end, that's why I think that humankind book is so good. Like, you know, this, this weekend I was, while I was in Canada, I was with one of the largest SWAT teams in Canada and, and listened to a debrief of one of their hostage rescues. And, you know, it's a, an aggressive father that takes his wife and, and two kids or ex-wife and two kids hostage at gunpoint. And, you know, the, the, one of the kids escapes and he shoots at his own kid and like, wow. you know how the situation's going to end, right? And they're they're back in the middle of nowhere and there's nobody there. And those two are going to get killed, right? The, it's a the baby, basically a toddler and, and, and the ex-wife. And they're going to get beaten. They're going to get murdered. And, you know, fortunately, you have a group of men that are willing to put themselves absolutely in harm's way. And it was one of the most dangerous hostage rescues I've seen but absolutely put themselves in harm's way to go rescue this woman and her kid who they've never met. They're never going to talk to and know nothing about. And I think that that's really what we need to be focusing on. We need to focus on the good stories. We need to focus on the good people and not allow the media to suck us into believing that everybody's evil and everybody does bad shit and we should just take advantage of each other. Because, you know, one of the great joys of, of my job is everyone I work with places themselves in harm's way for other people. Everyone was, I work with does selfish stuff. What was the uh, end of that story? Did they rescue the, the, yes. the wife? And- yes, they, they, they were both rescued. The suspect was killed in a gunfire exchange with the police. Um, and it was an extremely difficult technical rescue in the middle of the night with night vision. And I mean, it was, it was one of those things, you know, I mean, the perfect example is we interviewed one of the guys from the Bataclan hostage rescue, right. In Paris, where you have hostage takers, you know, multi, multi, multi location, terrorist attack, planned, coordinated assaults, you know, people blown up, people shot. They take a bunch of people hostage in a theater. It ends up with. 15 or 20 hostages in a hallway with two guys in suicide vests with AK-47s. And BRI, the, the Parisian tactical unit, goes in. Both hostage takers are dead. All the hostages are rescued. But you looked at that op and you're like, there was no way they make this entry without one of their guys getting killed. And they knew that. They knew that to the point that the first unit moved up and they staged a second unit around the corner. Right. And and as they're getting ready to make the entry, the guys are told, hey, the guys are wearing TATP vests. If you shoot them in the chest, they're going to blow up. So you have to head shoot them. Right. Can you think of a shittier situation than you're going to have to breach a door in a narrow hallway that's seven feet wide and 25 feet long with 15 hostages and two guys in suicide vests with AK-47s? And oh, by the way, make sure you head shoot them and don't shoot one of the hostages. And those guys did it. And one of their guys got shot in the hand. Both the hostage takers are dead. All the hostages are rescued because those guys were willing to expose themselves to that danger. And, and there was no question. Like if you did, if you ran that thing a hundred times in a simulator, 99 times, one of those cops gets killed. Like there's, there's no, you can't look at that situation and go, yeah, this one's going to go well. But yet all of those guys rogered up and went and did the job. And I think that's the part of it that we have to remember. And I mean, I see it all the time just because those are the units that I'm dealing with. 
but I think, I think it's easy to get sucked into a vortex of negativity, but in the end, turn off your TV, look at your neighborhood, look at your friends, look at your life and shut up. We really don't have it that bad. And, and we're lucky to have people that are willing to pin a badge on their chest and do what they do. Um, and we need to do a better job of, of supporting them and, and, you know, providing them with resources and support. Um, and, and I do think like I've seen this cycle play out three times over the course of my career. Uh, Rodney King being the most extreme instance where this happened. I think the momentum has shifted. I think it is swinging back. I think it'll be a while till we see good hiring numbers in law enforcement. Um, you know, I just talked recently to a chief who typically for their, they would open positions. They'd open like 25 positions. They'd have two to 300 applicants and they would hire 30 and put them through the academy and get 25 out the back of the academy. Um, their recent hiring, they had 35 people show up and they hired one Wow, for 40 positions. So um, if, if we want to continue to live like this and we want to continue being comfortable like this, we need to change our narrative. Um, and, and I think that, you know, hopefully we're going to start moving that way. And I, I do think it's important for people like you to do what you're doing and air the stories of law enforcement and, and put people out there. And that's, that's part of the reason that, that we did the debrief, right. Is, is I want you to sit and watch the head of LAPD SWAT team talk about hostage rescues and see the emotion in his face when he talks about a hostage getting killed. Right. I want you to hear from the guy that did the Bataclan rescue. I want you to see the leaders that are making, you know, tactical decisions in the country and realize that these are not knuckle draggy mangas, right? These are well thought, well reasoned, you know, caring human beings who have put their life into protecting other people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because we just this week are launching a new format for the podcast. We're adding a second kind of, you know, it's, it's our, our podcast is a long format, long discussion. Same thing is, is what you're doing. We're adding a 30 minute short version of it. And that 30 minute short version, which is going to be called battle proven leadership is focused on bringing in people who are adjacent, not only tactical leader, but, but adjacent to the tactical community. And the goal is to give our law enforcement leaders actionable information to give you something that you can walk away with in every episode and say, okay, I'm going to change this. I'm going to think more about this. Um, and like the first, the first episode is an interview with a nuclear submarine commander. So he's now retired, but uh, Randy nuclear submarine. And he talks about culture and he talks about how we can use culture to drive behavior. And, you know, it's, it's, it's those kinds of people that I think we need to be exposing to law enforcement and, and we need to be bolstering better leadership because that's the only way we're getting out of this, right? We're, we're going to lead our way out of this. We're not going to politic our way out of it. We're going to lead our way out of it. Well, leaders have to be willing to listen. Yep. If you're not willing to listen, you're not a leader. Well, they don't care because there's no accountability. They have nobody to answer to. And uh, at times, so what I've recognized is that I can't try to, you know, I can't try to manicure these crops to the way that I want them to go. So I'd have to sow new seeds in a new field. And that's what we've been doing. That's really been the battle plan. And if some of those crops want to listen, some of these, some people do change, but not many and very few and far between. So 
for me, my life's work is ensuring that, you know, I can do the best that I can to make sure the new and up and coming police officers and, and, uh, you know, they don't get polluted by those crops. They can grow independently and understand what the value systems are for a law enforcement officer and what's important. And, you know, I wrote this down before. I think you kind of pretty much talked about it for the last 10 minutes is be thankful, man. I, um, I think we often forget about the wonderful things in our lives and what we have so many things to be thankful for. And it's hard to go here sometimes, but I think about the men and women or the human beings that are literally on their deathbed, probably talk, looking at the last five to 10 hours of their life. And they trade places with you and all your problems for all the tea in China. They would just be you right now. Oh, yeah. So I look at my children and I, as morbid as it sounds, I'm not the person who, who created this. I try to appreciate every moment that I possibly can, knowing that I, not, I may not get that moment later on. It may not be a real thing for me be able to hug my daughter again or my sons. Um, so when they want my attention, I give it to them and I look at them in a way of appreciation. And, uh, you know, because I know people have lost children. Um, and I'm sure there's some regret of like, man, I wish I didn't watch the Jets game that day or the Raiders game. I wish I would have went outside and play. And, you know, listen, dude, I came back from Greece. I was... Jet lagged like a motherfucker. 26 hours awake. I was exhausted. They're seven hours ahead. I knew I was coming home to see my kids for about a week. And uh, I know I was coming home to essentially the cavalcade of, uh, of assault of love, which some people can misinterpret as annoyance when you're that tired. So I prepped my mind before I got home. I said, you know, they're going to be jumping all over you. You know, you got to just get ready for it. And dude, I was, I was exhausted. I mean, I, it, it took me three or four days to get unjet lagged to tell bad it was. Um, and I got to tell you, I was so tired, but at eight o'clock at night, one of them was like, can you play catch with me? And I was like, dude, now I'm up like 28 hours. I'm like, my own. And you know what I did? I got my glove, went and play catch with him. The last thing in the world I wanted to do, but I just thought, what if something happens tonight? Would I regret not playing catch with this kid? What if something happens to me? Is that fair to him? Right? So yeah, man, when they want to do something, I'm just ready to play catch. There's a, there's an expression, memento mori, remember death. And, and the, it's a morbid thought, but the idea behind it is that, you know, life is very precious and it's very temporary. And I, I think if you really want to get perspective on this, there is a TED talk that's done by a hospice nurse. And I can find it and send it to you to put in the show notes. Um, and she talks about what do people talk about when they're dying? What, what do they care about? Nobody ever sits around and goes, I wish I worked more. Nobody ever sits around and goes, I wish I politicked more. I wish I said more shitty things about people. They say, I wish I had been a better dad. I wish I spent more time with my kids. I wish I spent more time with my friends. And I try to constantly, you know, there are a lot of demands for my time. Um, in the same way that there are safety priorities in law enforcement, I have a priority of life in my, in my world. And my kids are the most important thing in my world. There is nothing work-wise that is more important than my kids. There's nothing more important than my wife. And I constantly remind myself of that because in the end, that's really your life's work, right? 
is is the way your kids grow up and the effect that they have in the future is to some degree your your life's work as a father. And uh, you know, I just the, this vacation with my kids was exactly what it was. It was spending time with my kids and my wife. And uh, I think it is very easy for us to get lost in day-to-day shuffle and very easy for us to get lost in all the things we have to do and, you know, all the things that we view as important. And frequently what we let is the urgent crowd out the important. And so one of the things that I try to constantly remind myself of is that, you know, my kids are 21 and 17, right? Like the, the exit is, is, you know, is close, right? We're, we're close to the finish line with them as children. And fortunately, they're both adults that I absolutely adore and love to spend time with. But, uh, you know, all those moments are, are very fleeting. And I, I think that, uh, you know, the older I get and the more I see now my, my mentors dying and my mentors starting to have debilitating health conditions and all of these things, um, you do get perspective. And, and I think that that's a lot of the reason that I've become less, um, you know, less defensive in my views and less defensive in my opinions, because you never really know. I mean, as a cop, you know that, you, you know, you meet somebody on the street, you never really know what's going on in their life. And in the brief second that you see them, you don't, you don't really know much about them. And I think it's important for us to be more compassionate towards one another and for us to have some emotional intelligence and really think about how other people feel because this, this polarization that we're experiencing is not, it's not making anybody happy. Nobody's winning here, right? It's, it's you know, kind of I, like you're looking at these heroin addicts sitting in Vancouver. It's like, yo, yeah, it's not criminal anymore. They're miserable. Their life sucks. We're not helping them. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, it's not, it's not the solution. You know, I, I, I'm not willing to have regrets. When you talk about the end of life, I think about end of life a lot. And I imagine myself hopefully just around 100 years old, uh, you know, being comfortable knowing that I have no regrets. Yeah. I just did it the best that I could. And I, you could say to me, what are your regrets? I'm going to say none. I was the best father I could be. I think about that nonstop. I did the best that I could with what I had. I didn't let anxiety dictate my decisions. I, I met a, somebody recently and uh, in a pretty crappy relationship. And this person is wonderful. It's wonderful. What a gift to the world. Uh, and every sense of it. And, and I said to that person, you're, you're going to see yourself. I know for a fact, if I know anybody can have regrets, it's going to be you. And unfortunately, it just didn't strike enough of a chord because anxiety is dictating decisions. And I want to give that gift to people here that you can't let your anxiety dictate your decisions. You're going to, you're going to come up short and you're going to have a lot of regrets. So things like what? Things like, I should go to that other place for the context of this, maybe the other police department, but I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, what are you afraid of, right? Like, let's unpack that a little bit. Well, ah, you know, I don't know. I don't know anybody over there. You know, the greatness is on the other side of the fear. And I've learned that it's not easy, but it's worth it. It's just worth it. It's worth it to know that at a certain point in my life, when I got educated enough, you will not hear a story of me not being there for a friend. And my best friends will tell you some of the things when you meet somebody who knows me and they say, well, what's Dennis like? It's amazing because people will say the same thing about me. And I'm very proud to wear this uh, is that. The guy will take his shirt off his back and do anything for you. 
You don't have to ask him. He just does it without you asking him. I like that being, somebody said to me recently, you know, you're, you're a really good dude. I guess because I practice being a really good dude. My intention with everything that I do is, is this going to reflect in me being what I want to be, which is a really good dude and a really good person. If it's not, then I'm not going to act in a way that convolutes or jeopardizes how I see myself as a human being to other people. So I'm always struggling with making sure I have a lot of empathy and compassion. Sometimes that one escapes me a little bit because of my upbringing. Sure. Um, and I really spend a lot of time practicing empathy and compassion. I really, really do. And sometimes life beats you up so much, you forget about empathy and compassion. So I'm learning and learning and learning. And I'm, I'm a work in progress. And I'll be a work in progress to the day I fucking take my last breath. Uh, all I'm trying to do is continuously improve and try to be the best human being that I can possibly be for others. And um, some people won't, won't understand that. And I pay dues like everybody else pays dues. And somebody sent me something today. There's like, obviously, I get trolled on social media and stuff like that. And I, I thought about when somebody sent me this thing, um, that was a whole thing about me. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm this, this person, blah, blah, blah. I'm just, I'm this big asshole. Um, I think about the person making that on the other side of things. Like, what kind of place are you in? And I don't mean this from like a, like a, like me being a shithead. I'm talking about like, man, what is this guy going through that he's taking his time, energy, and efforts? And instead of trying to make the world a better place or be a better human being, he's such a negative place that he's got to spend time, his own time that he's spending with anything else in the world, with trying to criticize somebody else. What a horrible way to live. And so if you're that person, you got to learn to practice to release that stuff. It's very, very difficult to do, but people can change when they want to change. And I wanted to change in my early 30s. And so I was criticized. Like you said, you had a few friends here that don't talk to you anymore because you guys went to a bigger house. Um, same story, John. Same thing. I have family that I don't talk to anymore. I had intention of changing. I'm very proud of who I've become at 41 years of age. I'm not perfect. I have plenty of problems. I make a bunch of shitty decisions all the time. But my intention is always correct. Um, and I think that judgment is one of the worst things we possess as a, as a culture. I, I've learned these lessons, you know? Uh, people falling asleep in my class. Every once in a while, I'll get somebody's nodding off in the back. And I know now, because I'm a very entertaining motherfucker in, this, in the program. And I'll say to them, hey, you work midnights last night? They're like, yeah, I did it for like 30 hours. I'm like, you're a better man than me. Like, I'm, I'm falling asleep. I'm, I, like, I, I'm sorry, sometimes I'm nodding off. I go, there's nothing to apologize about, bro. I'm so honored that you were able to make it to this class. It meant so much to you that you forfeited physical comfort to be here to try to progress your career. It speaks volumes of who you are. I respect you more than anybody in this fucking room. I bet you paid to be here. I bet you took vacation time. Like, yep, I respect you. But when the new dad, you know, when you're a new instructor, you're like, who the fuck is this guy? fucking falling asleep in my class. I put all this energy and work into it and he doesn't give a shit. So that's that judgment thing where I want to encourage people to practice. You know, you don't know what's going on in somebody's life. You just don't. So who the fuck are you to judge them? Yeah, I know you're right. I mean, we, we need to be more empathetic with people and, and you know, it's unfortunately, again, not a thing that we're teaching, right? It's not a skill that, that parents are encouraging. It's not a skill that, we are teaching. And I, I think that 
just trying to understand other people gets rid of most of your prejudice, gets rid of most of your, your anger. If you, if you understand, you know, I, I too have taught a lot of classes and, you know, the number of guys, especially working with tactical guys, like, you know, they, they basically stand up. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's how they keep right. themselves awake, right? Is they stand at the back of the room and pound cough. And, you know, you see a guy standing there and he's moving back and forth, you know, he's just trying to keep his brain engaged. Like, yeah, that guy, he might've worked three straight days and, and it's, it's not about us. And I think, you know, kind of a concluding thought is, as a leader, it's not about us. And I think that that's, that's one of the problems we have right now is we are, we are promoting and encouraging leaders and, and voting for politicians who all they talk about is themselves. Well, and, and they and all they do is judge others and never consider the other side and what they think about it. And yeah. that goes on both sides of the coin. I, this sparked one quick thought. I was impromptu coaching Little League Baseball, which it's a pleasure to do so when I can. And one kid on the other team is, I never saw this kid before. And so he's, let's just call it this way. He's fucked up. Right? He's a fucked up kid. <laughs> and, you know, my first thought was like, is something like, like is he diagnosed with something? So I said, uh, I said to the to the one of the fathers that I know who's very judgmental. I said, "What's something?" He goes, "Like oh, it's fucked up. It's been fucked up forever." No kid just gets born fucked up in that sense. He was not disabled by any stretch of the imagination. He's being parented incorrectly. He's being destroyed by adults. That's right. He's being parented incorrectly. Uh, and who am I to judge? And it goes back to that next judgment thing. Like, why is his father doing that? Why is his father parenting incorrectly? Was he parented incorrectly? Yeah, so it's yeah. this constant game of non-judgment. It's so quick for us to to just cast this judgment at people. Um, where I see that kid and, I, you know, my therapist, which I haven't gone to in months and months and months, thankfully, uh, you know, I was able to graduate from that. Um, her ability to be non-judgmental was fantastic. So I said to her at the end, I said, you know, if there's anything I learned, Kathy, it's to be more like Kathy because you sat here with non-judgmental glasses on and just listened and um, expressed compassion and understanding. And I haven't had that in a long time. People don't, people don't take a guy like me and express compassion. I'm judged yeah. nonstop. I don't get Hey, John, I don't get a lot of compassion, right? I'm not saying I need it like most people do, but I get fucking zero. Now from some people in the office who know more about my life for sure. But overall, I'm the bad guy. So, you know, to have somebody not judge me and understand more about me um, was, it was just a reminder of why it's so important for all of us to act that way. Yeah. And I think in the end, that is kind of the gift we can give each other. And, and if you are leading people, you know, take them where they are. Take them, take them, you know, you never know when the guy that's having problems at work is not having problems at home. And you know, do what you can to kind of meet people where they are and try to make everybody better. Like a lot of my job is everybody I interact with, whether it's a client or an employee or, or, you know, somebody I meet, try to make them better, try to learn from them, try to teach them, um, try to just engage them. And, and I think as leaders, we need to spend more time focused on the people we are leading and, and trying to help them. And it's, you know, it's a servant leadership mindset, but, um, 
it's one that gets lost in promotion and, you know, self-aggrandizement and everything else. So I think that that's kind of, you know, like my message to your end users is, you know, lead the people that you lead and care, care about them, uh, make them better. I will leave people with this. And I've said it, I'm sure at least five times on this podcast, there's a book called seven habits, of highly effective people. You don't have to read the whole book, but take out your phone right now. Uh, you're going to read three paragraphs called the subway paradigm shift. So you can just put in, you can probably Google search seven habits, of highly effective people, subway excerpt, subway story. And it's fantastic. And have you ever read that book? I have. Yeah. Do you remember the subway yeah. excerpt? Vaguely, vaguely remind me. So was it the kids disturbing everybody in the subway while, the, while their father's reading the paper? Oh yeah. Do you remember that part? Yeah. I mean, fuck it. I'll read it again. I mean, as well. So I, you, you know, you don't got to pick up your phone. I'm just going to, I'll, I'll, I'll search that real fast and we'll, we'll end on that note while I'm doing that. John, what did you want to promote today? Anything in particular where people find more think, about you and your podcast? Yeah, I, I think that the biggest thing is the podcast and, and just kind of this new, you know, battle proven leadership series. I think it'd be great if, uh, you know, people tune in. If you enjoy it, please share it with people. Um, the podcast has done so much more than I ever expected it would do and is is ranked so much higher than I thought it would be that, uh, you know, it's it's just such a tremendous opportunity to uh, to bring the most talented people I know to a broader audience and, and get them in front of, you know, a, a street cop and, you know, whatever she, Wisconsin can reach out and see, you know, a, a team leader from the, the RCMP or from LAPD or, you know, BRI in Paris or, you know, any of those. So, uh, you know, that's the biggest thing is just, and if you, if you have ideas for guests, if you see the podcast or listen to the podcast and, and think, Oh man, they should have this guy, please email us. Um, you know, if you have feedback, we'd love to know. Uh, we always do a good job together. So I'm very proud of this podcast episode. <laughs> and now the, Book, Seven Hobbits of Highly Effective People, author Stephen Covey. I was riding in a subway one Sunday morning in New York. People were sitting quietly reading papers or resting with their eyes closed. It was a peaceful scene. Then a man and his children entered the subway car. The man sat next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to his children who were yelling, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. I couldn't believe he could be so insensitive. Eventually... With what I felt was unusual patience, I turned and said, Sir, your children are disturbing people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if he saw the situation for the first time and said, Oh, you're right. He said softly. I guess I should do something about it. Just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago, and I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Suddenly, I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart filled with compassion. Wife just died. I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. And when I read that, it changed my life too. Think about it all the time. Love that. Brother, it's been real, man. I appreciate you so much. Yeah, you too, man. Anything I can do, I'm here. You reach out. I'll see you. I got a piece so bad. <laughs> see you, buddy. I'll see you. Take care. Guys, if you're in an area where you're trying to get to our classes, but we're not close to you, 
fret not. We actually have on-demand training at streetcop.com. You can take that course online right now, and then you could attend that training in the future at no additional cost. You can redeem your voucher. So you get two for the price of one. We don't want to deny you the ability to take this training now, especially knowing that it can keep you safe at a very minimum, putting bad guys in jail where they belong, and at the maximum, going home to your family. Check out streetcop.com for that offer.